Hello and welcome to the podcast Shaped By. Shaped By is an interview series brought to you by Murray Edwards College, Newhawk at the University of Cambridge. In each episode, we will interview a member of our alumni exploring the experiences which will shape them to become the women they are today. This series is produced by Molly Gibson, me, Lexi Hoskins and myself, Eliza Gagelli. In this week's episode, we're joined by Serena Nixay-Now. Serena studied medicine and graduated from Murray Edwards College Newhall in the year 2000. She undertook a PhD at the Wellcome Sanger Institute in 2009, where she explored breast cancer using whole genome sequencing. She was awarded a Wellcome Trust Intermediate Clinical Fellowship in 2013, and she joined the Sanger Institute faculty team the following year. For her groundbreaking research, she was awarded the incredibly prestigious Dr. Joseph Steiner Cancer Research Award in 2019. This was originally also known as the Nobel Prize for Cancer Research, and she's the first female scientist to win the award. Thanks to her research, mutations in cancer tumours can be analysed using new bioinformatic methods, which enables new approaches to targeted therapies. Last September, she was elected as an honorary fellow of Murray Edwards College Newhall, and so she makes a perfect guest to begin this series with. Serena currently lives in Cambridge with her husband and two children, and she loves nothing more than doing yoga and being in the garden. So without further ado, welcome Serena. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation to come and chat today. Oh no, we're delighted to have you on. So we begin every podcast episode by asking, what did you dream of doing when you were growing up? Did you have any dreams about what you wanted to do? And this isn't necessarily career-wise. Sure. So my first... um thing that I wanted to do was to be a photographer for National Geographic. (laughs) So, you know, I I grew up in Malaysia um, and, you know, we didn't quite have the access to information and knowledge that we have today from the internet, right? We had books and we had magazines, but National Geographic was one of the things that my father um, sort of um, uh, subscribed to. So we got that. And I really wanted to be a photographer and to travel the world and see all these wonderful places um so that was what I really wanted to be um you know in growing up with uh, parents of that generation that have been born during the second world war um in Asia as well uh, everybody wants their children to be either doctors lawyers or engineers <laughs> anything else was considered sort of you know hideous ignominy so um you know I uh a very from a very early stage anyone I, I, I wanted to do to do medicine my father was a doctor he was the first one in the family to be a doctor, actually, first one in his family to have a tertiary level education at all. Um, and so I, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's, you know, uh, in those days, that's, that's you, you, choose your, you choose your path and then you work towards it. <laughs> Did you know that you wanted to go to Cambridge? Was that a goal of yours or is that something that kind of happened quite naturally? So I... I wanted to go to the UK to study medicine because everybody else did that when I was little, and um, and I was very lucky to 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 win a, a scholarship from a petroleum company called Petronas to 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 study medicine in the UK. Now they were happy to pay for your schooling and board and all that sort of thing. Um, where you went to was entirely what you could achieve, and so I, you know, just aspired to go to university in the UK. When I was in boarding school, so I was sent to boarding school. Um, to do my A-levels by the government and um, by Petronas. And when I was sent there, the school were the people that um, suggested that I should try to apply for Cambridge. It wasn't something that I had 
physically thought that I would be able to achieve or didn't even cross my mind. Um, and it was with the sort of the push from others that, that I, I, in the end, did do it. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the biggest self-confidence, actually, at the time. I, you know, I just sort of, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to do medicine in the UK. Um, and I wasn't sure I would, I would fit with Cambridge. I wasn't sure that I was um, going to be capable of achieving that. But I had a lot of people around me, actually, sort of pushing me and um, uh, sort of encouraging me to to. To, to, to do it and and I'm glad I did. I, I came to Cambridge for a visit um, and I remember the day, I remember walking from the train station all the way to Newhall, but kind of taking it all in and drinking in all the, the architecture, the, the, the bustling city. Um, and I, I thought, wow, and I've never been anywhere like this. This looks amazing. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's how I ended up coming to Cambridge. It was really with the push from others. <laughs> You come across as incredibly humble despite all your achievements. I mean, and that's something that I really took from our prior correspondence, prior to this conversation. Do you feel confident now or where did you find your confidence when you kind of came to Cambridge? That's such a great question. Um, I I don't really know if I'm if I'm really honest. I you know, I, I think I came to Cambridge when I went to visit Newhall, I felt an affinity for it. I felt you know, this is this is Cambridge, but it's a little bit different in Cambridge because it was with this modern structure, this kind of, uh, it was new, it was warm. <laughs> it was, um, uh, I think it kind of spoke to me because it felt like it, this was still Cambridge and everything about sort of the culture of Cambridge, but it was a little bit different. And actually then someone like me, who is a little bit different, right? I remember this is 25 years ago now, um, coming to Cambridge probably would be okay. And so... I think I saw bits, I could see myself fitting in, in, in certain parts of, um, of Cambridge. And, and I think from there, my confidence grew. When I was in Newhall, it was all warm and all inviting. You could be yourself. You could, it was very diverse. Um, it was very welcoming. It was very authentic. Um, and so I think that's how the confidence came eventually. It wasn't a sort of, I don't think there were sort of stepwise moments, but it was a sort of just being in an environment that was, permissive for you to develop as yourself and I think that was from being at Newhall um, and uh, oh yes uh, great great people who um, who sort of inspired me or, or were always there for me my director of studies Chris Huang Professor Chris Huang who um, you know all, he, he was such a humble guy as well right he was this always had his torn jumpers and <laughs> Um, but he was always there for us. He was there every, almost every day of the week, whether it was weekends or whatever. Um, he, he sort of gave us the sense that you could be yourself and you could still thrive and do well. And I think that there was just an inner, an inner um, confidence or inner strength that came from just being in that sort of environment. So, um, yeah, I think it came bit by bit over time. Um, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> I love that. I think I think it's so true. I think Mary Edwards and Newhall is such a kind of 
diverse and inclusive place and it does make you feel super confident and comfortable to kind of grow as a woman I think I think it's a great community here as you were saying you know the people that you met when you're at Murray Edwards New Hall and you said in our conversation prior that you in a group of eight women who were studying medicine and actually saw your tweet that the Murray Edwards New Hall account had retweeted and it was a picture of you and your friends on Zoom recently so I'm assuming you still all stay in contact Yes, we do. So we've had a couple of Zooms this year already. Um, we're all connected by WhatsApp as well. And every once in a while, there's a flurry of messages, whether it's about kids or jobs or, you know, whatever, something in the news. So we're all still in contact. In fact, I spoke to one of them yesterday. I work with another one here now, you know, 20 years later, we've both ended up working in the same same institution. So, um, yes, I think we had a very strong camaraderie, very strong friendship um, and we were very diverse. That's the other thing. We were extremely diverse and uh, very comfortable being who we were. We used to have these cookouts um, and, um, you know, bring bring our own bits of food. But it was so great because, every, you know, we had uh, people with sort of background from from India or, or from Yorkshire or, you know, from Taiwan, from Malaysia. And it was it was lovely. You know, we had this 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 strong uh, brand of female um, camaraderie um, and that has stayed nothing has changed right that's that's still maintained we're still very strong and proud of each other we're very happy for each other um, and I think we we get a lot of strength from each other from there I love the idea of a like kind of lifelong sisterhood and I think female networks are so important to women and sometimes we kind of take for granted how much they influence us as people and I suppose how did these women that you met how have they shaped you um you know quite apart from sort of being here for each other through all the good times you know there have been there have been some moments which haven't been quite so good and um but those moments have influenced I think you know the people that we've become today so you know when we were back now in, I think it was about 2004 um, one of the group of eight developed a, a very severe illness. It was a, it was a leukemia. And, um, you know, we were 28. Uh, and most 28-year-olds are carefree and, you know, don't have to worry about a thing in life. And, and this colleague of mine, you know, she was so sick. Um, and I remember going up to visit her and uh, in hospital, she was going to have a pioneering stem cell transplant, which was going to be one of the first people in the country to have it. It was frightening. It was really quite scary. And I remember going to visit her and just feeling so upset that I, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to see her again. And gosh, talking about it, it made me feel a bit emotional. Um, it was a real moment of realization for, for me, at least, that, that life is pretty... You know, life can be transient and life can be pretty precious so um and not to take things for granted and i i i felt that that was a, that was i think quite a key moment for me the realization that for all the education and for all the privilege that we have had as people in cambridge life can deal you a blow sometimes and and we're gonna have to somehow try to come through it um, and um, not to take things for granted, to, to enjoy the good moments in life. And so, you know, I think, I think that has, that, that period of our lives has influences as a group. So that I feel that when we see each other, we just, we do, when we come together, we really do enjoy the moment together. And um, yeah, we, we don't take it for granted. 
you've gone through so much with these women and I, I was wondering you know the experience that you were just talking about with your friend did that influence you at all in your kind of career trajectory um yes for sure I you know I've I, I feel like um something like that you know if if you've been through something like that um, or seen something like that, whatever happens to you in your own career, in your own lives, in your own paths, um, somehow you need to be able to um, come, find the resilience to come through it. So, um, yeah, you know, put, put things in perspective as well. You know, um, we've all had tough times and bad days at work. Um, and it's so important to take a step back and say, okay, but in the big scheme of life, I'm pretty lucky. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm in a pretty good place. And um, yes, I've, I've got lots to be grateful for. So you left um, Mary Edwards New Hall in the year 2000 and you worked as a doctor for the NHS for 10 years. What made you decide to go into research with your PhD? So that's a great question. I, I, um, I had worked for the NHS for 10 years and I was in a field called clinical genetics, which is a specialist area of trying to understand uh, and diagnose patients who have rare genetic disorders. Most of the time, these are children with learning disabilities or um, congenital abnormalities. So they're born with abnormalities physically or, or learning wise. And there's also to do with people um, who inherit genetic disorders that make them more likely to have cancer or to have some kind of neurological disease. So it's uh, a specialty that, that deals with um, genetic diseases, basically. Now, um, the ability to do genetics, when I first started in clinical genetics, was pretty limited. We were restricted to being able to um, read or sequence the human genome in a very particular way. So it involved a lot of manpower and a lot of time and energy. Um, but as I came through that specialist training, a new technology came, which is called massively parallel sequencing, where the human genome can be blasted to bits, and then you can sequence, you can read all the parts of the genome in parallel, which is why it's called massively parallel. Um, so you could read the whole genome pretty quickly, basically now. And I felt at that point, I was in clinic as a trainee, and I would be sitting opposite a family, uh, with a disabled child perhaps and there were new technologies coming and I would be looking at a report unable to fully understand it and if I as a as a medic couldn't fully understand it how do I communicate that to a family how does a family take in that information and say okay the doctor doesn't fully understand it how am I supposed to understand it because of course families are on a journey right they're trying to understand why has this happened to my child what are the implications going forward? You know, how am I going to help my child? And it's, it's, it's very hard, I think, for families to find closure if they haven't got a diagnosis. So I felt at that stage a little bit disempowered by technology being available and not being able to understand it myself. And so I decided I'm going to go and do a PhD. I was not young. I was in my 30s. <laughs> I had a one and a half and a four-year-old. Um, but I decided, no, I know, I, I think there's no barrier to uh, uh, doing, learning something new. And so I wanted to learn about bioinformatics and computational biology and uh, this technology. And so off I went to do my PhD in my mid-30s. 
talking I think that's so inspiring for our listeners to hear about because obviously I think that there's a there's this kind of false idealization that women's careers are linear and for someone as successful as yourself it's as though there's always been this smooth sailing trajectory and from our previous correspondence I know this wasn't the case for you with your PhD. So could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So yeah, you know, I think my my career is anything but linear. I think a lot of my career has been pretty serendipitous. So, um, you know, the technology came along, I wanted to do a PhD and I applied to um, um, a well-known, you know, a world-renowned institution. I applied to work with a woman um, who was a, a leader in her field, but she wasn't well. Um, and somehow my CV ended up with someone else. And I went to speak to this um, other person in, in the Institute and, and he said, well, if you want to do bioinformatics and you want to learn about genomics, come and work for me. Cause you know, we have, we do cancer. In cancers, you've got thousands of mutations. And so I thought, right, okay. You know, this guy was quite inspiring. He was sort of, you know, he was clearly interested in the work he was showing me and I could see the potential and I thought, wow, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I went to do that. Um, um, it was, it was at the Sanger Institute and, um, and boy, I learned a lot when I was there. I was one of the first ones to do whole genome sequencing at scale. So where we do many, many people at one go. And, um, and it was hard. It was really hard. And perhaps I was slightly naive going into it thinking, oh yeah, you know, this will be like anything else I've done in medicine. And of course, it was very different to anything else I had done in medicine. Um, and um, you know, the I also had two small children, so I would have to be very focused. I'd have to come in and do my work, and I'd have to leave at five five thirty every day, which perhaps isn't the done thing a lot of the time in PhDs. PhDs tend to be done by people who are a bit younger, who tend to not have families, and this whole idea of you leaving at five or five thirty every day was, I think, raised a few eyebrows. Um, but um, I, I realized that, um, I couldn't be, I couldn't be worried about what people thought. And, um, so it was not a straightforward time. It was also, you know, PhDs, science tends to be very competitive because we tend to, uh, um, we tend to, tend to pedestalize individuals. We tend to say, okay, you know, we value your publications and your prizes. Um, so it's a very individualistic exercise, whereas medicine and the NHS is not like that at all. In the NHS, you tend to be fighting the corner of your patients or your department. So it's not about you personally. And so there was this shift of way of thinking, which had come to me rather late, and I wasn't very used to it. It was quite a competitive environment and something I wasn't that used to. Um, and so I didn't really fit in that environment. If I'm, if I'm really honest with myself, I, I didn't quite fit, but I was committed to this PhD and I was enjoying the science. I was enjoying the work. Um, and, uh, one of the things I learned in that period was that things don't have to be rosy all the time. We have this sort of, you know, uh, idea, idealistic way of thinking, oh, it's going to be wonderful all the time. And and life's not like that though, right? There are moments which are, or that sometimes there are protracted periods of time where things are not perfect. Um, but I think I was, I had to be honest with myself and say, okay, I'm not really, my personality doesn't quite fit here, but I do see the good things and I'm going to work on those good things and I'm going to, I'm going to try to do my best here. 
Um, and and I, I think I did my best, <laughs> the best that I could have done in that time. Um, I certainly don't have any regrets. Um, I, I think there were moments that were difficult for sure. Um, and, but, but I also did, you know, I, I just, I learned so much and it, it was a massive leg up for my career. You know, that time was enormously influential to what happened to my career for, from, from then onward. So I don't have any regrets. Um, uh, but, you know, I think in life, we, we just sometimes have to be, to be true to ourselves and sort of say, okay, this bit's a little bit hard for me. Um, but it's okay, you know, there is a, there is a purpose for it and um, I'm going to come through it and, and I'm going to come out the other side without being bitter. I think that's, that's really important because I think that colors how you see things and that sometimes bad things happen and um, you have to sort of say, okay, well, um, there were some things I can, there are some things I can control and some things I can't. And for the things that I can't control, I have to make peace with myself and I have to leave it behind. I have to not be bitter about it um, and not carry it with me for the rest of my life. So, yeah, it's always straight. Um, a path isn't always straight. So my, you know, me doing a PhD in my 30s, that's not, that was not uh, typical. I, I think there are no rules, as it were. I, um, and I think we shouldn't be afraid of deviating from the norm. You know, I think uh, we all have different lives or different people and things come to us at different times. So... Um, I think we just need to be comfortable with the decisions that we make and um, be honest with ourselves and then, you know, take the best step forward at every juncture. Absolutely. And I think that's such valuable advice for, I mean, so many women that will be listening because you, you need the lows to appreciate the highs, obviously. But when you are experiencing those lows, where do you find a sense of solace how do you kind of say stop and reset you know it's um so sometimes we'll have activities <laughs> that will keep us uh that help us take our minds off things um i think it's really important to have things that you do outside of work in, you know, in my head work is part of life not the other way around <laughs> um so i think it's really important to to have all those other activities so i you know i play the piano but i um i have my children i have my family but I, I find a lot of solace being outdoors. I love being outdoors. Um, I think this goes back to the whole National Geographic thing. I've always, I think I've always been fascinated by the outdoors because I think there's so much wonder in the world. And even, you know, I go out into my garden every day. I try to go out every day, weather, weather permitting. And there's always something else that is kind of a little bit amazing outside. So I find a lot of solace in, um, being a, seeing landscapes, being in open vistas. Um, yeah, just seeing what Mother Nature can produce from her being. Um, and, and sometimes that's, that's all I need. I just need to go outdoors, breathe, take in the view, take that perspective, reflect quietly. I, th I suspect I'm not somebody who's, I'm not, I'm not the most um, extrovert individual. <laughs> uh, I probably quite like, um, the silence of my own thoughts. I like to just sort of reflect quietly. So um, yeah, just sort of taking time outdoors, um, taking in um, nature um, and just having a bit of quiet reflection time. I think um, nature is so healing and I think we can totally all relate to that after a year in lockdown with very little else to do. And when we're talking about taking time out, I think it was so poignant in our conversation prior to this 
that you emphasize the importance of taking pauses on a broader scale. I think there's this pressure for women generally, future, present, past students of Murray Edwards Newhall to kind of jump on that kind of career treadmill. And it's, it's, it must be difficult to know when or how to get off. And I know that you've spoken about this with your kids. So I, I suppose, please, could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, you know, pretty early on, I, um, I met my husband and um, we, we had our first child. And um, this was in 2004, which was, you know, quite a long time ago, 16, 17 years ago. Um, and I said, well, you know, I, I was training as a doctor at that point. I was still a junior doctor. And I said, well, you know, this is, this is my first child. And um, I think I should take some proper time off with him, <laughs> which really wasn't the done thing in those days. Uh, in fact, we didn't get statutory maternity pay beyond about three months. So if I, if I remember correctly, after about three or six months, there's no pay at all. Um, but I said, no, no, I'm going to go and take time off. In fact, I'm going to take a whole year. And I remember a few people saying, Serena, that's mad that nobody does that. And this was, so this was, you know, 17 years ago. It, was, it just wasn't the done thing. And even my father sat me down a few times and said, are you sure this is going to set you back? This is going to put you behind your colleagues. You're, you know, in, in junior medicine training, in junior doctor training, we do various exams, professional exams. Um, and you know, it was all, everyone's measured by the professional exams. And I remember my dad saying, well, he's going to set you behind all your colleagues. They're going to go racing ahead. They're going to go into the specialist training and you wouldn't even have started. Um, and so I remember thinking, it might feel like it's a big deal right now, but in 10 years time, is anybody going to remember who was ahead by one or two years? I really don't think so. And I, I, I said, well, my baby's gonna be a baby once and I want to be there and I wanna be with him and I want to be comfortable in that decision. Um, and so I said, no, I'm gonna take my year off and I'm going to enjoy his babyhood. And I did it a second time with my second child. Um, so these were big gaps in my career development years, but I think they were really important in me keeping perspective on my life and my career. And I don't think it's made any difference at all to my career, in fact. Uh, so I think that these pauses are sometimes actually quite a good thing. And, um, and if life throws you a pause, whether it's babies, whether it's sickness or um, an ill parent, um, that actually you could and you should embrace them because they're very precious moments that you'll never get back if you don't, if you don't use properly. And in fact, you know, during the COVID period last year, my mother was, uh, she was, she was terminally unwell. So she, she'd had metastatic cancer and uh, she had it for a few years but last year was really you know she was really terminal and ironically because it was covid and i wasn't traveling i could go back because she's you know in malaysia could go back to malaysia and spend six seven weeks with her just spending good time with her and holding her hand and chatting to her and you know reflecting on on old memories looking at photo albums together singing you know just doing silly things together but it was so precious and I'm so pleased I did that. Did it work take a hit? Yes, but it doesn't matter. And so I think these pauses in life, when they come, embrace them, uh, make the decision and then don't look back, don't look over your shoulder, don't compare yourself to anyone else. I really don't. I, I just, 
I decide this is what I want to do and I just focus on what I'm doing. Um, you know, I think it's important to be personally ambitious, but not to be competitively ambitious. Um, and so I feel that taking these pauses, they're, they're, they're super important. And, but, and when you decide you're going to do it, just do it and just enjoy it. I'm so sorry to hear about your mum and I think it's so important to um, remember that sense of perspective because I think it's so easy to lose it when everything is so all-consuming with work and you think that's your entire life. Among your various other achievements, I know that you were recently invited to be an external examiner for a degree course at the University of South Malaysia. Yeah, so I am from, as I said earlier, I'm from Malaysia. My father was from the East Coast in Malaysia, um, which is a very poor part of the country. In fact, one of the poorest parts of the country. And um, even though he did have an education, he was the very first one in his family to do so. And when it was school holidays, sometimes, you know, my parents were just too busy and I, I would go and, and, and live with my grandmother in, in, uh, on the East Coast. So this was a, a city called Kotabaru. Um, up in the uh, northeastern coast and um, it was a village by the river um, on stilts. All the houses are built on stilts because in the annual monsoon season the waters will rise and um, you know the, the traditional old Malay houses are always built on stilts and up above the ground. Um, and when I went back, when I invited back to be this external examiner and it was you know it was revered it was slightly weird <laughs> to go back because <laughs> I was still sort of me you know I still dressed like I would have done in the past um, but I went and I did all my external examiner thing and you know I was treated with such respect and um, it was really wonderful to, to, to do that professional thing and, and then the professor goes well Shall I take you around and, and show you the city, you know, what it looks like these days? And maybe we can even go and find your grandmother's house. And we did. We went to find it. And it's, you know, it's, I think it's, it's stuff like that that sort of helps me to remember, um, to remember where I came from, I suppose. Um, that the times that I spent with my grandmother, they were, they were, they were interesting because I would be there during the, during the floods, the monsoon season, and the waters would rise and, you can't go out, you'd have to go by boat anywhere. And you'd watch some real hardship happen. Um, there were deaths. There were, you know, I mean, for, for, in the first world, you'd never hear about stuff like that. But, you know, deaths amongst people during floods was kind of common in those days. Sickness, um, cholera. I was in Kotebaru during one um, cholera um, epidemic. I had to leave after that. Um, and, and some of the girls I used to play with, in fact, one of them's got the same name as I have. So my, my Malaysian name is Nick Serena. And there's another girl called Nick Serena in the same village. And she still lives there. She still lives that life. Um, she's very happy. She lives uh, living that life. But I've just had such a different life. And I, I you know, I, I do find myself feeling, gosh, I feel really grateful that I've had a, such phenomenal experiences but I also realized that this person and I, we could have easily been changed, right? I could have been her and she could have been me and I would not have had the same life experience. Um, so these, these sort of um, almost, oh, you, would, you, would you consider it chance? It could be chance, right? I, I, you know, I, I could have been her and she could have been me. Um, they do keep you grounded because you realize that you've had the opportunities that you've had um, 
because you've had the opportunities that you've had and um, that, that it could have been very, very different. So for me to have gone back, it was 2019 as this external examiner, all revered and all, but to go back and see my granny's house uh, and see where, where I came from, you know, these, these things, they do, they do, they do have an uh, impact on, on sort of how you think and how, how you view you know, life. And, and uh, yeah, I, I feel, I feel really lucky. And it sounds like such a kind of full circle experience. Yes, it was actually, it really was. Um, it was a little bit sad in some ways because it had changed so much. There's no big major road going through the village. A lot of people are now educated and have left and the place is sort of like a bit racked ruin. Um, but, um, but it also, uh, yeah, it, it just, I've had a very diverse sort of experience of life and I, I feel I feel very rich for it. I feel like, um, yes, it, as you say, it, it was full circle. It was, uh, yes, it was a very interesting time. You have achieved so much and you have had such a diverse life. And so I wonder, is there anything that you still want to achieve? Um, you know, I, I feel that a lot of people helped to open doors for me ever since coming to Cambridge. Um, a lot of people pushed me along, as I said at the start, that I didn't think about Cambridge. It was others who said, you know, Serena, we think you can do this. You should do this. And that sort of sponsorship, that mentorship is so crucial to help people get places. And I, I still try to do that myself for others. I try to pay it forward, as it were, and sort of point out to people, you should do this, you should do that. And because it makes so much difference to that individual when you, who are more senior, says it to them. Now, it may... Ha- cost you as a senior person nothing to say it but for the person who's been inspired by your words it could mean so much and genuinely through my time in Cambridge through Newhall through my clinical career through my research career it has been um, I have been guided by people who sort of said have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And, and they can be all shapes and colors, right? They don't just have to be women. Some of them were white men. You know, they were, in fact, the person who nominated me for the Joseph Steiner Award was a white man, you know. And um, I think just having that um, open-mindedness and, and uh, being um, in trying to inspire others, I think is something that I try to do, try to pay it forward because others had looked out for me. So I try to do that. That's one thing. But I think the other thing then is, having had all those opportunities, having learned so much about genetics and genomics. Um, one of the things my mother said to me was, um, you know, all this, you got this PhD in pity patterns, mutation patterns. H- how does this benefit mankind? <laughs> and so I'm quite, I, you know, one of my aspirations is to try to make it as useful as possible um, clinically. So one of the things that's driving me right now is to try to take the algorithms, the mathematical and computational algorithms that we develop um, through our genomics work, trying to take that into the clinic. So we you know, are working with the National Genomics Endeavor, Genomics England. We're working with the local um, gen- genetic service to try to implement um, some of our tools and some of our mathematical methods so that we can characterize patients' tumors uh, more accurately. Yeah, so I think that's, that's my, that would be my big thing, really, trying to make it clinically useful. But that's amazing and I think so many people listening will, to this will be inspired by how purposeful your career is. And 
finally, before I let you go, because I know you're obviously incredibly busy, <laughs> I would just like to ask, how do you define success? How do I define success? I, you know, um, I find this a tricky one to answer. I, I've always felt that success is in our heads. Um, in fact, this is one of my buzzwords. I always say success is in your head. Um, how we view our personal successes is entirely within our heads. Um, and I think if we set ourselves very specific goals and have too linear a path and then you don't really achieve it all the time, then it can really knock you. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel that um, for, for me, success isn't about publications or prizes but just how I feel and how comfortable I feel in my own skin and in my life and whether I feel content with the life that I've got. Um, I think we can be a little bit too consumed by achieving, achieving, achieving. Um, but um, yeah, I know I, I, I try to be grateful every day, which is why I do the yoga because it forces me to sit down quietly and just stop. Um, and I try to find that, definition of success in my own personal being in my head um, and sort of say okay all good I can go to bed happy and smile tonight when I go to bed <laughs> so, I don't know it's a bit of a long-winded answer <laughs> yeah, and I think being content is so underrated thank you so much that's been fantastic Sunny. thank you so much for being on the podcast and good luck with all your future research Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eliza. It's been a real pleasure.